Well, good morning. Appreciate the uh, opportunity again. I know that these, these things tend to go really quickly. And uh, it's a busy time for people and appreciate you taking opportunity to uh, take your time out to spend a little bit of time with us this morning. And, uh, we're going to first hear this first session, talk a little bit about the, uh, the Lord's Church. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get too fancy. I've, I've already been saying, you know, this, this weekend that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a building blocks kind of guy. I like to uh, kind of bear, bear back to the, to the foundation and, and uh, try to understand, you know, the groundwork and then build up a, a little bit from there. Uh, much of what I've been presenting, uh, I, I try to think about as uh, trying to enable better conversations. My, my goal here is not to answer every question. I don't know that I could answer every question. My, my goal is not to, to uh, bring down judgments and decisions for everybody and what you can or cannot do. My goal is simply to, to provide a framework for better conversations, and, and uh, I think sometimes uh, we have to go back to the, to the foundations to, to better understand how to do that. And so that's what my goal has been. And I'm going to try to do the same thing as we talk a little bit about uh, the Lord's Church uh, this morning. And again, uh, there, there will be many things that, that could come out of this that I'm not going to have a chance to get into, but, but at least try to better understand the framework for what the church uh, is and, and why we exist. And, and so, in its most basic sense, uh, the church is a group or assembly of people. Um, sometimes you hear, well, you know, ecclesia uh, means uh, the called out or something like that. Well, uh, meaning is not the same as, uh, you know, etymology necessarily. And uh, you have to look at how a word is used. And I think when we just look at how the word ecclesia is used uh, in Scripture, that it's really just talking about a group uh, or assembly of people. And, and you get an idea of that, I think, in Acts, the 19th chapter, uh, even demonstrating that uh, the word ecclesia is not uh, in itself a religious term. Uh, you know, it, it's, it just, it's just a term that indicates uh, an assembly. And you have this, this idea of uh, this riot that takes place at... Uh, uh, Ephesus and, and uh, the word assembly or the word uh, ecclesia is used two or three times. But you get that in verse 39, you know, if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. The, the word assembly there is ecclesia. Uh, and, and again, so just the idea of a group that's somehow uh, a gathering uh, together in its most basic sense. Uh, and, and when we look at this uh, term as it's applied to uh, God's people, uh, I think we'll find uh, basically four ways in Scripture that the term is used uh, with reference to the people of God. Uh, first would be universally. That is to say, uh, when we talk about the universal body or the universal church, it refers to all of God's people everywhere, all whose names are enrolled in heaven. And, and this is found uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 as, a, as an example of this. Um, you know, you've come to the, uh, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven. Uh, and that, uh, by the way, is plural, firstborn ones. Uh, 
So it's not talking there specifically about Jesus, it's talking about the people of God. And, and uh, the word assembly here is a different term, but the word church is assembly, is the word for ecclesia. Uh, so it, it's the idea here of just all of God's people everywhere whose names are enrolled in heaven. And in that universal sense, uh, everybody uh, who, who are Christians, everybody who have been saved by the blood of Jesus are part of that universal body. And uh, it doesn't matter where you live or when you live, we're part of the same church that Paul was part of, Peter, and so forth. Um, and so it's not, it's not bound by time or space or anything like that. It's just all of God's people uh, are referred to as His assembly, His, his body, His group. And uh, secondly, would, sometimes it's used of the sum of Christians who are in a given region. And I think that's interesting because, uh, for example, in Acts the 8th chapter and verse 3, uh, Saul began ravaging the church, uh, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he'd put them in prison. Of course, this is not a building we're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about the people. Uh, and so in this context, it's... Uh, those who are in the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then if you drop down to chapter 9 and verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Well, in this particular case, it would be the sum of all Christians in this region. And in that sense, it would be appropriate to talk about, you know, if you want to just talk about in, in broad terms, the church uh, in the Pennsylvania area or the church in the Pittsburgh area, something like that, uh, you would just be referencing all of God's people in the area, wherever they may be. Uh, so it's used in that uh, kind of a broad sense as well. Thirdly, it does refer to a local group of people. And uh, this is very clear as uh, you're looking at epistles and epistles are being written to specific congregations. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2 to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Uh, so here's a, a body of people, a local group of people who would be gathered together to listen to the epistle being read and so forth. Um, and so you have local churches in that sense. And you, you see that like in the book of Revelation, uh, these uh, the letters that are written to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, and so it's not the church of Asia there, it's the seven churches of Asia. So these are local congregations, and then the angel would, you know, the messenger, whoever, whatever that may be, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, addressing these letters to these particular groups of people. So in that sense, uh, you have a local group of people here. This is the, the church that meets at this location. And then, uh, fourthly, it would refer to a local group that is physically assembled. Now, there is a difference. When you are not assembled together, you're still the church of this location. Uh, you know, you call yourself uh, the East Side uh, Church, and so uh, whether you're assembled physically or not, you are still the church uh, of this location, of the East Side Church. Uh, but the, the word is also used to refer to the actual physical assembly itself, so that when you come together as a church, and I think that's an interesting expression uh, that's, that's pretty telling. But for example, in 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, verse 18, that statement is made in the first place, when you come together as a church. 
And then I, you know, says there are divisions among you, and he's trying to correct all of that. Um, the same thing in chapter 14 and verse 19. Uh, However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind. So when he says in the church there, uh, he's not talking about just the broad sense of you're at home and I'm at home and we're still the church. He's talking about in the assembly itself so that when you are physically gathered together, there are certain things that you need to be doing or not doing and so forth. And uh, you see the same thing in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and so forth. Now, granted, you've got a, a spiritual gift context here, but it's still addressing the concept of an assembly, uh, gathering together. So again, when you are gathered together as a church, there are particular purposes in mind that you're gathering together for. And uh, I think that expresses some kind of intent. Uh, we are gathering together as the church or in the church for a you know, specific reason. And uh, I think, again, that, that's important to at least distinguish uh, that. So they, these are the four uses that I would find in Scripture that uh, re- referencing God's people. So, again, ecclesia is a broad term used of, of any assembly or group of, of people in, the, in that period of time, but it's taken and applied to God's people in these four different kinds of senses. And it is important, I believe, uh, that we distinguish and discern and make sure that we are defining ourselves uh, appropriately here, especially when we begin to think about the functions that God has, has given uh, to the church. Uh, if we ask the question, well, when was, uh, when was this established? And we talk about the establishment uh, of the church. Well, uh, it's clear that uh, the day of Pentecost serves as kind of that, that turning point in Acts, the second chapter, uh, you know, Jesus had made the point uh, in Matthew 16 that, uh, you know, I will build my church. And uh, again, he's not talking about building a, a church building. He's talking about uh, building his people or, you know, creating his people. And, and it seems clear, uh, especially it's interesting that he tells Peter, you know, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. And it's Peter who's preaching on the day of Pentecost and uh, kind of this, this new establishment, this new order of things that is happening, and this results in uh, the church. And, uh, but, but, you know, we could say, well, that's, you know, AD 33, but you might have been to church buildings that will say something, you know, have a plaque up and say something like, you know, this church was established in AD 33. That's a little bit misleading because the reality is that local churches are established at various times and places. So while it is true that the universal church and I would even say the church at Jerusalem was established in A.D. 33 on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, um, we couldn't say that this particular congregation was established in A.D. 33. So local churches are established at various times and places. And you see that in the book of Acts as uh, the Apostle Paul with Barnabas, you know, they're going about and they're establishing new congregations, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, Pisidia, and so forth, and uh, involved very much in, in creating new congregations as new Christians are being uh, made there. Uh, when we talk about the universal body, and, and frankly, uh, I, I find uh, it more appropriate when you see body language being used in the New Testament, uh, that it's, it's most likely a reference to the universal 
body of Jesus Christ. Um, but we need to understand that the universal body is comprised of individual uh, Christians. Now that does an impact in the work that individual Christians, of course, uh, do. It impacts the local congregation, to be sure. But, uh, you know, the, the point is made in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as, as Paul is using that metaphor of the body and the various parts of the body that work together, uh, he makes the point in verse 27, you are, the, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Uh, so our conception of the universal uh, body is important because it is, it is not an interconnected web of congregations that comprise the universal body. It is individual Christians who comprise the uh, body of Christ. And again, that's important for conception purposes because really when you think about the, the nature of denominational structure, it's really kind of based on the idea of a superstructure that overarches congregations. And uh, congregations then get uh, connected together, kind of this interconnected web of, of groups that, that are then tied together under, under an overarching head or something to that effect. And that's just not what you find in the Bible. That, that's just not, it's just not there. What you find is the body of Christ universally are just individual Christians. And uh, that there is no overarching superstructure uh, or centralized embodiment. And someone might say, well, what about the apostles? Well, okay, the apostles were Christ's apostles. Uh, we don't have them living today other than through what we find them writing and, and all of that. But uh, they, had, they had special authority that I don't have, that you don't have, that no other person alive today has. Uh, so, but there's, no, there's still no earthly headquarters um, you know, where, where we gather together and say, all right, we're going to make decisions for the body of Christ uh, universally. Uh, which brings us then to the notion of the local church, of course. Now we're talking about a group of Christians in a given locality who are banded together specifically to do God's work. Uh, you know, why do we meet together as a church, in the church and so forth? Why do we do that? Um, well, I mean, you, you, you could have just lived in the area and said, hey, we're going to meet every uh, weekend over here at the basketball court and play games and you know, just have some fun. That doesn't make you the church, nor does that make it a gathering in the church or as, a, as, a, as the church and so forth. Uh, again, there's purpose expressed in that kind of a phrase uh, when you gather together. But basically, again, as we said, you're, you're still the church when you're disbanded. Uh, but um, you, you come together for particular uh, reasons. But a local congregation like this is independent. It's what we often call autonomous, which just means self-governing. Uh, that is to say that you are not under you know, the hierarchy of some other church or group of churches or uh, diocese or anything of that nature, uh, you, you operate independently. And so as a local congregation, you make the decisions about how you're going to proceed and uh, no other group or body or anything has authority over you to say, no, you can't do that or, or anything of that nature. So that's what we mean by independent and uh, autonomous. And 
even organized. And, um, you know, you, you do get that sense in Philippians chapter 1, as Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, uh, it's interesting that he mentions them. That, that does indicate some level of organization. Uh, now, granted, it's not a highly complex organization uh, or anything of that nature. Uh, when overseers or shepherds are appointed in a congregation, uh, they have oversight only of the flock over which they have been appointed. They have no right to step outside of that or oversee another church or anything of that nature. Um, but, uh, and of course, I, I do think it's important as a local congregation that you, you give attention uh, to the idea that we want to uh, eventually have uh, overseers or elders appointed here uh, if you don't have them. And uh, because that's, you could see that this is what God wants. Uh, he wanted elders to be appointed. He gave instructions for that. He gave qualifications for that. And so it is something that local congregations need to pay attention to. It's God's will. Uh, we can't just say, well, we don't want them here, so we're not going to even think about it. Uh, that wouldn't be the way that uh, you see happening in Scripture. And Paul went through, back through churches specifically and, and appointed elders uh, because it, it, uh, it's what helps things run smoothly. It's what God wants as uh, souls are essentially shepherded and made sure that uh, everything is, is according to the will of God. Uh, and I realize, you're looking at a congregation that, uh, where you may not have anybody qualified at this point, well, that, you, know, you, you do what you can, but uh, I try to encourage all groups to always be moving forward in that direction, pay, paying attention to, uh, to God's will on that matter. And uh, as a local church, again, you're not functionally tied to other churches or organizations. Uh, you know, again, you operate independently, you're autonomous, you, you know, you're not here uh, in order to become a donation agency to other organizations or anything of that nature. Uh, you know, you're, you're here to do specific work that God has assigned for the local church to engage in. Uh, but uh, again, not functionally tied to other groups. And that doesn't mean that you don't recognize there are other uh, groups of Christians that, uh, you know, you might want to support. You have visitors here who, you know, come and, and support you and so forth from other congregations. And, uh, and that's fine, but that doesn't, that doesn't functionally tie you to uh, those other groups. Uh, all of that is going to be done on an individual uh, basis. So we ask, you know, why does the local church uh, exist? Um, I think it's important to, uh, you know, recognize first here that uh, Virtually all the work that you do is going to be first done by individuals. So whatever we're going to talk about here is, you know, we recognize that the church has an activity invol involvement in that, but in reality, what the church is doing is facilitating individuals to do the work that they're supposed to do. Uh, so, for example, the church is here to facilitate teaching, edification, building up so that everyone may serve. Um, you know, you have that statement made, and again, there's, there's language about the body in, used in, in Ephesians 4 that I think indicates that there is, there is universal effect and benefit. Bear in mind that whatever you do as a child of God uh, ends up 
benefiting not only the local congregation, but the body of Christ universally. I mean, everything you do uh, helps in the cause of Christ and in the building up of the kingdom of God. That's why, while it's important that we pay attention to what's going on in the local congregation, it's also important to recognize that, you know, our work, everything that we do has implications for the kingdom of God as a whole. And uh, so we want, uh, we want to recognize that. But Ephesians chapter 4 talks about uh, the gifts that God gave to the church. And I think, again, it starts out in the broad universal sense and then kind of narrows it down a little bit because he talks about, uh, again, Ephesians 4, giving some apostles. Well, apostles weren't given only to a local, one local congregation. Apostles were really to the benefit of the entire body of Christ. Uh, and some prophets, same thing with the prophets, and apostles uh, and prophets and some evangelists, and then notice some pastors and teachers. Well, the pastors, of course, would be the overseers, the shepherds. Uh, and now, now you're talking in, in a more local kind of sense at that point. But notice that the reason for that, verse 12, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Uh, the idea that uh, these are gifts that are given in order to facilitate everybody being able to serve. Uh, that's why I try to stress that, you know, in a local congregation, uh, while we often uh, talk about the preacher as the minister, as I'm, I'm not the minister, I am a minister among many. And uh, really every, every Christian needs to be working to that end to be able to serve uh, in the body of Christ. So that's really one of the things that we're involved in. We facilitate the spread of the gospel. Uh, that's, again, why we exist as a local congregation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think is important here because in verses 7 and 8, uh, Paul commends the church at Thessalonica for becoming an example to all believers in Micaiah and uh, Macedonia. In verse 8, For the word of God has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out. Uh, now again, how exactly does the Word of God get spread? Well, you say, well, the, the work of the church is to spread the gospel. Yes, that's true, but it's still only going to happen when individual Christians do their share. And, uh, you know, that, that's what has to happen. You've got to decide as a, you know, as a Christian, I'm going to involve myself in trying to reach out uh, to the world here. And uh, the church can facilitate that uh, process. And then to provide benevolent care for saints in need. You have passages like in 1 Corinthians 16, collection taken up for the needy saints. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, again showing that uh, you know, churches in one place, in this case in Macedonia and so forth, were collecting their funds and giving them to Paul so that he could take them down to the church at Jerusalem where there was a famine and there was a great need to, to be cared for there. And that itself was a display of a desire for fellowship uh, from the Jews and the Gentiles. And of course, Jew-Gentile relationships were huge in the first century. And so you have Gentiles gathering collections together to help out needy saints among the Jews. And that was a display on their part to say, you know, we want to share in the fellowship uh, with you. And again, the church uh, helps facilitate that. And uh, really to provide for assembling together. Again, uh, passages like 1 Corinthians 18, uh, you know, when you come together as a church, uh, when you come together in the church, chapter 14, 
talks about. So we provide for this opportunities to assemble together, to participate in the Lord's Supper, to worship uh, together, and so forth. Um, and, and really what you'll find is all of that um, you know, is going to be done first by the individuals doing their share, uh, but also by the church in some fashion taking the collections and you know, providing for that. Because the reality is, as, as much as we'd love for everything to be free, it's not. Uh, you know, the, you, you, there has to be some expectation that when you're going to meet somewhere, it's probably going to cost some money. Um, I don't know how else to do it. I mean, you say, well, we'll just meet in the middle of the street somewhere for free. But, um, you know, eventually that probably is not going to work out too well. Uh, so there's got to be something of that nature. If you're going to facilitate the spread of the gospel, uh, while you say, well, the gospel is free. Well, yes, but the spread of the gospel isn't always free uh, because it has to be taken places and you, you have to pay for travel and uh, expenses and uh, we have authority to support uh, men to preach the gospel and uh, so forth. Uh, so, so all of that is going to take the collection of funds and that's one of the reasons then why the church is going to, uh, the local church is going to exist and uh, provide for those opportunities. Uh, and in that sense, it, it's a very limited kind of work. The church, uh, local church as an organization, uh, has limitations to it. We're not here, uh, you know, to buy cookies and donuts for the world and, you know, that kind of thing. We're here to provide for these particular things. Now, as an individual, you're going to have more freedom uh, to do things that, uh, you know, you're not going to do when you assemble together as a church. And the reality is we understand that that's the case in virtually any organization. Uh, certain organizations exist for particular reasons and, and uh, you know, you, you can even be charged, not the church, but I mean, you can even be charged with criminal activity when an organization exists for a specified reason but they misuse their funds for other purposes. Now, if I'm giving my money to a hospital, I expect them to use it for, you know, hospital care. Uh, and if I give my money to a hospital and I find out later they're using it to, to buy, you know, baseball uniforms, I'm probably not going to be real happy about that. That's probably a misuse of, of the funds unless that's what they're stating up front. Uh, but you get the idea. We understand that businesses and organizations exist and they have charters and they have, you know, purposes that are stated. And uh, when they abuse that, they misuse that, you know, they come under uh, legal problems uh, in the process. Now, what I'm saying is that uh, as we understand that happens just even in the secular world, uh, what would make us think that, you know, as a local church, we come together and then we just get to do anything and everything as the church that we want to do? Uh, God has, has shown some limitations to that uh, particular process. And, and I believe these are, the, these are the particular works that we find uh, in the Scriptures, uh, and I'm just trying to limit myself to, to what that teaches. Um, now, uh, a lot of times this leads then to the question, well, does one have to be a member of the Church of Christ uh, to be saved? And uh, I, I think you have to think about the nature of that question. And, and I just ask people, you know, exactly what do you mean by that? Uh, does one have to be a member of the Church of Christ uh, to be saved? And, and that, this is one of the reasons why you have to come back to the nature of the universal and uh, local group uh, concepts. So in one sense, if someone's going to, you know, if, if what you mean by that is uh, you have to be a member of the body of Christ 
you know, in universally in some fashion? The answer would be yes. Um, but we, we are also understanding that we're using Church of Christ in a, in a particular kind of way here. Um, if, if you're asking, do I have to be a member of a local church that has the sign Church of Christ on it in front of it, that's, a, that's really a different question. Um, because, uh, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that uh, there are biblical and unbiblical uses, usages of that phrase. Uh, Romans 16, 16, of course, speaks to the churches of Christ uh, there, salute you. And it's, 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 it's just a descriptive kind of thing. Church of Christ in Scripture is not given as, as a title uh, that everybody, you know, unless you use this title, uh, somehow you're not part of the body of Christ. Anymore. That's just not found in Scripture. And we're trying to be biblical. We're trying to be scriptural here. Uh, now, I would often say that I don't know why anybody who's you know, wanting to follow Scripture uh, would use a name that is unbiblical or unscriptural or something like that. Uh, but we understand, I hope, that uh, there are many usages uh, or many uh, ways in which God's people are described in Scripture. We saw in Hebrews 12, uh, 23, the, uh, the church of the firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven, or as Paul wrote, to the church of the Thessalonians, or the church of God at Corinth, or so. These are descriptive, and that's all that is. And if, if you're asking in the, in the descriptive sense, the answer would be yes. If you're asking, you know, it, does it, do I have to use that as a title on everything? No, that, that's a different uh, kind of question. That would be an abuse or a misuse of that particular phrase. Uh, and, and more could be said about that, but I, I hope you get the idea. And, you know, someone might say, well, isn't this just about tradition anyway, um, that all these things we're talking about? So let me address that for just a second uh, here. Um, you know, tradition is something that is passed down. That's all that means. It, it's something that is passed down. It, it can be good. It can be bad. It could simply be a choice. Uh, you know, and there's, there's nothing in and of itself that's wrong with tradition. My fear is that sometimes we use the word tradition in kind of a pejorative uh, way. Oh, that's just tradition, you know. And, uh, well, you, you've got to define what you mean once again by that. You, we can't just, you know, so that's tradition and then write it off um, because tradition is unavoidable. Uh, you, you'll never avoid tradition, by the way. Uh, we may well abandon one tradition and then establish another tradition. And, uh, you know, later on, what you're thinking is a new thing uh, will be next generation's tradition. And they're going to say, we're going to abandon that because, you know, well, again, uh, you, you, I think it, it has to be more deeply considered uh, than that. Uh, some tradition is necessary. Uh, what we would think of as apostolic tradition, for example, Second uh, Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, so then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. Uh, whether by spoken word or by our letter. Uh, and that's, that is the word tradition. I mean, hold, you, know, you hold fast to the traditions that you've been taught. Now, uh, that's, that's talking about apostolic tradition. That's talking, talking about what the apostles, by their inspiration, taught. That's not just saying that any old tradition that you've received, uh, you've got to hold on to, and this is what teaches that. No, we're talking about what... what the apostles required, what Scripture requires, what God requires uh, as a necessary thing, that will be passed down. I mean, I, I hope that we understand that the Scriptures we're reading and studying here are 2,000 plus years old. 
They have been passed down through time. That is tradition. Uh, but in this case, it's required, necessary tradition because it comes from God and His uh, apostles. Uh, some tradition has to be changed. I mean, you know, we, we notice in Mark, the seventh chapter, again, that tradition, we mentioned this uh, the other night, uh, that when they were saying, Corbin, we've dedicated these things to uh, the temple, and uh, Jesus says, you've neglected the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Uh, and so some traditions, uh, you know, can be such that you end up uh, overriding the word of God with them. Uh, if a tradition uh, becomes so important to you, a, a handed down practice that in and of itself is not necessarily apostolic, it has, you know, it has to be done, um, and, and then you begin to hold on to it in such a fashion that it overrides the Word of God, yeah, that's a problem. That has to be changed at that point. Um, but some traditions, uh, it's just a matter of choice. Uh, they're neither required or necessary, uh, but at the same time, um, they're not wrong. Uh, for example, you know, what time do we meet? Well, that's a tradition that you guys determine as a local congregation. And uh, that gets handed down, uh, you know, and you make a determination, are we going to meet at this time, are we going to meet at that time, whatever, you know. And there's no, uh, you know, Church of Christ time that you have to meet at on, on a Sunday or something to that effect, nor uh, is there a required number of times that you have to meet other than that you meet. Uh, I mean, at least once, I suppose, you could say is, is necessary, but... Um, do you meet twice? Do you meet three times? Well, that, that, that's your option. That's your choice. And yes, it's possible that, um, you know, you get so hung up on a time that, you know, if we change from, uh, you know, 6 o'clock to 5 o'clock, we're somehow, you know, messing with Scripture. Uh, traditions like that are, are a matter of choice. And uh, again, they, they can be a hindrance or they can be a help. And that's really, in, in discussions of authority, that's really where you begin to talk about, you know, that term expediency. Because what you're looking at is, what is the best way to expedite what we're doing and how we're doing it? And uh, there are lots of choices that we have, that we have to make uh, about that. You know, it's like, you know, we mentioned, uh, somebody might say, well, where's your authority for a songbook? Well, if you think about it, does God want us to sing? Well, of course he does. That's a tradition, an apostolic tradition. He wants us to sing, and we need to do that. Um, so how do you get, when, when you're talking about Christians singing together, isn't the assumption that we're all singing the same song? I mean, I would hope so. Otherwise, it's just chaos, and it's a mess. Uh, at least there's a principle in 1 Corinthians 14 that you're doing things decently and orderly. Uh, so how do you get the words, the common words that we're going to sing into the minds and the mouths of everybody? Uh, and my point would be that any method you choose at that particular point is not specified. So if somebody says, where's your authority for a songbook? Is it the same authority that you would have for someone to stand up and say, let me tell you the words that we're going to sing? Uh, you know, I mean, it, there's, it's, it's the same idea because all you're doing is expediting how you get words into the minds of the people and in the mouths of the people to carry out what God wants you to do. So we have choices. We, we have to decide what's the, the best way to accomplish uh, that. And even thinking about uh, changing, you know, what's our motivation? 
We said, do we have reasons to change uh, traditions of choice? Well, we might. And, uh, you know, I'm not eager to make changes quickly. I think uh, if, if changes need to be made in traditions of choice, uh, there still needs to be reasons for doing that, not just willy-nilly, you know, it's time for a change, so we're just going to make it for the sake of a change. Because I think once we, once we get into that mode, we're, there are probably bigger issues at stake here. You know, I'm, I'm all constantly given to having to change this and that. And uh, that becomes uh, fairly confusing. But if, if there are solid reasons and you can articulate that, well, I think it ought to be considered. Uh, or are we so set in our ways, on the other hand, that we refuse to consider change when it's a tradition of choice? Uh, that's when it gets into that problem of the Mark Seven issue of somebody who gets stuck in a tradition of choice in such a way that I can't even imagine ever ha you know, changing that, and so it has to be this way, and, and then we, we conflate our traditions of choice with, with Scripture, and that's a problem. So we have to look at our motivation either way. Uh, do I have reason for it on the one hand, or am I so set in my ways on the other that I refuse to consider it? And I would just, uh, on this level, consider Acts, the 17th chapter, real quickly. Uh, we'll close this session out. Um, but I like to think about Acts 17 in this light because I think it, it does give us some interesting things to think about. If you look at the very first uh, part of Acts 17, the, they're in Thessalonica. And, uh, of course, what you have is they're preaching the gospel in the synagogues, and then some of these Jews are so upset by the preaching uh, that they, uh, you know, so these, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here and they begin to persecute and, and so forth. Really what you're looking at is an attitude. Is it old? We don't want to hear anything new here. Uh, you know, they're not willing to listen to what is new to them. They, they don't want to hear about the resurrection. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to, you know, we're just going to stick to what we know. And uh, if you bring in anything new, we're, we're going to, you know, drive you out. And that's what's happening here. But then if you go to the other side of the spectrum in Athens, what do you find? Well, is it new? I mean, Paul goes into the city of Athens and it tells us very specifically that they gathered so that they can just hear some new thing. That's what they wanted. And so now you've got the other side of the spectrum of people who say, I don't want to hear anything we've already heard before. Just give us new things. You know, give us something more exciting. And uh, that's going to be what we're going to hold on to for a while or something. And, uh, you know, and my point is that, that either side of that is wrong. Now, you know where I'm going next, don't you? Because what do you find right in the middle? But the Bereans in Acts 17 and verse 11 who were noble-minded, why? They were eager to listen to the Word of God. They searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Their question is, is it true? And my point is that in the final analysis, when you're looking at traditions and so forth, and what we do as a church, the question is not, is it just old? I mean, a lot of things that might be old, something might be 500 years old. You know, well, but that may not, in fact, that might not be old enough. Uh, but that's not really the question. Nor is the question, is it new? Let's just try something new and exciting. You know, Well, that, that's really not the question either. The real question is, is it true? Is this what God wants? Uh, is this right? Uh, you know, and then operate. Now, maybe it's new to you, and it's still true. Maybe it's old, 
and it's still true. But my point is that the real question still boils down to whether or not it's right, whether or not it's true. And that's, that's what we have to gauge uh, our actions on, uh, not just uh, I'm going to change it because I want to change it or, you know, I don't want to change anything because I'm so set in my ways, but is this right? Is this the Word of God? Is this the truth? Can it be established uh, by Scripture? And if so, then we need to keep our minds open uh, about that. So I'll just end uh, with that uh, at this particular point, and we'll take a few minutes break.